Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of experts in their field and do not reflect the opinions or views of Vault Studios or Tegna. Additionally, all suspects are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, and any and all crimes are alleged until a court finds otherwise. I'm Eric Flack. This is Anything You Say, an inside look at the tactics the experts use to get a suspect talking. I know, I know you want to tell us. I, I, can, I can see it in your face. So few people will believe that a person would confess to something they didn't do, especially when the stakes are pretty high. You do have a right to remain silent. It's just before 2 p.m. on December 11th, 2019. Detectives from Colorado are sitting on a dirt road outside a home in Lake Butler, Florida. That's a small city not too far west of Jacksonville. 1.57 p.m. They're waiting for the home's resident, 62-year-old James Curtis Clanton, to return home from his trucking route so they can ask him a few questions. When Clanton finally pulls up, the detectives, they flag him down. Clanton hops out of the cab of his semi-truck and he starts to talk to them. So um, I really appreciate your uh, willingness to help us out with this. Your name came up initially as a suspect in a major securities fraud case out of Colorado. Uh, we're talking multi-million dollar case. Um, as we've started digging into the case, what we actually think has happened is that someone has assumed your identity back in Colorado because we're not seeing any connection between you and the entities in Colorado that are involved. But what we'd like to do is take a little bit of your time to kind of sort through all this just to make sure uh, that we're uh, on the right track and that you're not involved, basically. After the detectives give him a chance to park his truck, they all stand around for a couple minutes, actually chatting and joking a little bit. Really appreciate your time. I know it's inconvenient. How's your work day been? Long. Got that. <laughs> I'll start pretty early, don't you? I leave here about 3, 3.30. Oh, my God. Dang it, man. I'm still drooling by that time. <laughs> One of the things that I saw is they did depend quite a bit on humor and kind of joking around with him and that kind of thing. And, and I think that they did that in order to uh, decrease the, his likelihood of responding in a negative way. This is Krista D. Forrest. She's a psychology professor and chair of the psychology department at the University of Nebraska Kearney. As she points out, the detectives keep things light as they explain to Clanton what's going on, that they're just trying to cover their bases and make sure he's not involved in this financial crime case. They had several individuals there, but they tried to play it down as much as they could. I noticed that I don't think they used any kind of police vehicles. It was just uh, plane, plane vehicles and um, talking with him in general. They were just kind of standing around waiting for him. Awful lot of police for it. Well, it's... That's just the, 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 the captain. We were telling him what was going on. With outside agency, they, you know, they want to get their nose in it. Yeah. 
Clanton agrees to go with the detectives to the local sheriff's office voluntarily to help them clear things up with regard to this fraud case. But that case, the reason the detectives give Clanton for wanting to question him, it doesn't exist. The real reason they're picking him up is to try and solve a murder. In January 1980, nearly four decades before investigators would track down James Curtis Clanton, the body of a 21-year-old college student named Helene Przinski was discovered in a field near Denver, Colorado. As snow began to fall in the field where the body of young Helen Pasinski was found, obliterating any clues, authorities called off their search of the area. Przinski had been sexually assaulted and then stabbed to death. When investigators found her body, her hands, they were still bound behind her with nylon straps. Uh, the case went unsolved for nearly 40 years. This is Kevin Vaughn. He's an investigative reporter who's covered this story for Nine News in Denver. It was a DNA breakthrough uh, late last year, a genetic genealogy case where they were able to take DNA from the crime scene, from Helene Przinski's body and her clothing, and go through the process of using that DNA to identify genetic relatives and then use those relatives to build out family trees and eventually uh, led them to a man in Florida uh, who was in Colorado at this time, was living not that far from where this happened at that time, and he was arrested in uh, December. That man was, you guessed it, James Curtis Clanton, the man detectives picked up in December 2019 under the pretense that they were investigating that financial crime and possible identity theft. A few weeks earlier, they'd gotten a sample of Clanton's DNA by waiting for him to leave a bar and then snatching the beer mug he was using. When the DNA sample from the mug was tested, it proved to be a match for the genetic profile of Helene Przinski's likely killer. But of course, the detectives, they aren't telling Clanton any of this when they bring him in for questioning. When police officers ask you to come downtown, if you will, let me just use that as an example, most people aren't going to go if they think that they're being questioned about a crime that they've committed. But if I somehow ask you to come downtown because you know something about a crime and I need your help, or you, it looks like you might have been a victim of a crime, can you come down so we can talk about it? A person's going to be more likely to do that because they're not going to see themselves as being in trouble right away. Well, anyway, we got a patrol car. It's completely standard protocol. We're not going to put all the cuffs on you and, and strap you up, put your head, <laughs> legs to your head and all that stuff. Um, but if you don't mind, before I put you in the car, I do have to kind of search you and make sure you don't have any pocket knives or bazookas or cannons. Anything like that? No. Okay. Whether he went to the um, police station, or excuse me, the sheriff's station, because he believed them, or whether he went because he knew he didn't really have a choice at that point, it's not really clear. But um, he did at least behave as if he were believing what it was that they were saying to him about the identity theft. As we've talked about in previous episodes of Anything You Say, investigators are allowed, right here in the United States of America, to use deception to get information from a suspect. In the United States, it is not illegal to lie during an interrogation at all for police. Now, it is illegal for us to lie 
<laughs> in response to a question of police, but police can use whatever deception that they need um, in order to get information from the suspect. Professor Forrest is a research partner and co-author with William Douglas Woody. He's our expert from a couple weeks back when we looked at the interrogation of Travis Slaughter in Toledo. We should point out that they have both advocated for the removal of deception from police interrogations. I think it's important to note that uh, not all countries find it to be legal in order to use deception in uh, the interrogation room. The United Kingdom, for example, and their peace model of uh, law enforcement in an interrogation, they do not allow uh, deception during an interrogation. And yet their solve rates are comparable to the U.S., And so when the argument is being made that we have to continue to use deception or people aren't going to confess, that doesn't seem to be the case there. When they bring Clanton to an interrogation room at the Union County Sheriff's Office, the detectives, they are still sticking to that ruse about the fraud case. Um, So as I was explaining to you, we are from Colorado with our financial crimes investigators, and we are here on a, a major uh, securities fraud violation case uh, out of Colorado. We've been investigating it for several months now. Your name initially came up um, as a potential suspect in the case, uh, as have the names of some other uh, people as well. Um, in doing some background investigation into the people that are involved, we've been systematically able to eliminate uh, most of the people that have come up. Um, and um, to be quite honest with you, that's what, I'm, that's what we're here for, is to try to get the The investigators, they're still friendly with Clanton, but now that they're all sitting in an interrogation room, a cramped interrogation room at that, Clanton appears at least a little uncomfortable. According to Professor Forrest, that's the point. Well, they do that on purpose, and part of it is to make you feel uncomfortable and kind of make you feel like you're out of your element. When, when people talk to us in our own homes, we feel like we are kind of the person who's in charge of our home, right? And so that's going to give us a certain amount of power and a certain amount of comfort. If I bring you into a room such as an interrogation room and you're out of your element, that's going to automatically make you feel more uncomfortable. And they specifically had that table set up in such a way so that he was kind of caught between the table and the wall and there wasn't very much space. And then the other two, uh, and the, the two interrogators were on the other side of that desk and talking with him facing forward. And so it, it really created an environment of being somewhat claustrophobic, if you will. As soon as Clanton sits down, the detectives read him his Miranda rights. And while they insist that's just a formality, this could be seen as a clue that he's not just here to provide information as a witness. The detectives, they want to make sure they can use, as the old warning goes, anything he says against him in a court of law. Police officers are using Miranda more often in case something that comes up during the interview process is as important as something that comes up later on when they're moving towards an interrogation and they want to be able to use all of that information. This raises the question, what makes a police interview different from a police interrogation? When does one turn into the other? When a lot of people are thinking about an interrogation, they're thinking about the part where the police go, I know you did it, 
Um, here's why I know you did it. So you might as well confess, right? But it's not so cut and dry. Um, I would argue that the, a good police interrogator takes a person from an interview to an interrogation in almost a seamless way that before you know it, you realize that the whole conversation has changed and you weren't really sure of where that spot was. And I think for a long time, um, if we look at some of the interrogation trainers, they were very specific about an interview is about getting information and an interrogation is about accusing. But now it's really more of let's integrate all of this together. And at the end of the interrogation part, get more information from our, our suspect, including a confession. And with these rights in mind, are you willing to talk to us at this point? For now. For now? Okay, fair enough. After reading Clanton his rights, the detectives, they start asking some questions about this supposed financial crime. The, the allegation here is basically that um, the securities transactions were transacted in Colorado over the last several months to the tune of several million dollars. The thing that makes me believe that um, this is more of a case of eliminating the suspect than anything else is the fact that we haven't uh, found any business connection, real estate connection, or really any other connection uh, to Colorado. Uh, uh, even though the, one of the people who is uh, involved in the case on paper has been using your name and date of birth and social security number. So it's likely that you're a victim of any identity theft more than anything else. Um, but just to uh, ask the question straight up, uh, have, have you ever lived or done business in Colorado um, that we're uh, not aware of? I lived in Colorado many, many, many years ago. Okay, well that's helpful. Um, what, when, uh, when was that approximately? 7980. Now, remember, Helene Przinsky was murdered in 1980, meaning Clinton has just admitted to being in Colorado around the time she was killed. Clinton mentions that he was on parole when he was living in Colorado following a prison stint in Arkansas. Do you mind if I ask what that was for? Right. Okay. Were, uh, were you convicted as an adult or juvenile? At this point, Clanton, he starts to seem a little suspicious about the detective's reasoning for bringing him in, why they seemed so interested in what he was up to way back in 1980. Does this have something to do with me violating my parole back then? No. Violate your parole? The detectives assure Clanton that their investigation has nothing to do with any parole violations. They then go back to asking some of those more tedious questions, questions that seem a little bit more plausible for a financial crime investigation. So they were trying to keep him within the context of where were you at this time? They repeated a lot of questions. Part of that is to get some confusion going with your suspect so that they're not necessarily able to determine what direction you're going right away. And so I think that they were aware. And then at that point, they were just going back through and reiterating some of the details that he had given to be able to um, tie it together the different locations that where he lived. Did you live anywhere else in between um, Colorado and Florida? I came here to Coco 
and then I moved back to Montana, or to Montana. Then I came back to Florida, and I moved to Oklahoma. As the interrogation continues, Clanton, he seems to be keeping his guard up, at least a little more than he was at the beginning. I think that he thought a little bit more before he responded to items at that point. You know, it wasn't just an instant response to different things. It was more like, well, I'm not really sure. Let me think about that. And he was a little bit more specific about his responses or a little bit more, he was a little bit more deliberate. But there are some subjects that Clanton still seems open to talking about. That also seemed to be at the point in the interview where he really started talking a bit about his past and talking about information related to some of his previous cases and what previous um, parole hearing, for example. And, and it was almost like he was developing a, a why for, for why what had happened in his life had happened. The detectives seemed to notice this narrative, this why forming, and they start to feed right into it. I'm certainly not judging, but it sounds like you had a pretty rough, uh, rough time growing up. What a terrible childhood. <laughs> say not. Wow. Well, I'm sorry, but uh, it sounds like it was uh, a lot of stress for you. You know, one of the techniques that police officers use is theme development. So let me offer you um, a, a possible theme that would explain why you would engage in such a behavior. And then that way you can say, for example, I might ask, was it accidental or did you do that on purpose, right? Now, the problem with that question for the person who's being questioned is you, it, it's, it's what we call a two-prong question, right? Either way, you, either way you answer that, you've just admitted to doing something. And so in order to respond to that question as an innocent individual, you kind of have to step out of that question and go, well, I didn't do either. And it just doesn't fit in with the way we respond to questions or statements. And so they really did kind of steer him towards um, a theme of my life was was rough um, growing up and here's all the problems that I had in my experience. And so really what he's doing is he's putting together a lot of explanation for why this behavior may have occurred. When the detectives bring up Clanton's daughter, on the other hand, he assures them she's had a stable upbringing, nothing like his own. Do you still have contact with your daughter? Mm-hmm. That's good. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that things are right. Bang, I need to text her and let her know I'm home. Oh, okay. It, uh, so, so you have to take contact with her? Oh, excellent. I go down and see her once a month. Well, they're trying to um, target his empathy, right? So you care about your daughter and you would never want something like this to happen to your daughter. So as a parent, now think back to this previous experience and what can, you know, what can you do to help with closure with the parents? What can you do to, are you feeling guilty at all? How can we overcome this guilt? That kind of thing. She called me when she gets to work. I text her when I get home and then we talk to each other. That's good. Very nice. Good. So, I think she's had a little more stable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. 
With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Eventually, the detectives steer the conversation back toward Clanton's time in Colorado. About 45 minutes into the interview, they really start testing the waters, seeing just how close they can get to asking about Helene Przinsky without dropping their front entirely. So obviously the main thing that we're focused on is... uh, out of Colorado, but it sounds like you were there just you know, like basically 40 years ago. So as long as they could stall it and, and make it seem as if it's possible that there's something else going on here other than that murder, they could keep him talking with the idea that some information that would be relevant would be given to them within the context of the questioning. They ask if Clinton had any romantic relationships during his time in Colorado even pointing out that the question is admittedly a little off-topic. And in talking to you, and it's not directly related to what we're talking about, but um, it seems like um, a lot of the troubles you've had over the years with uh, the law uh, have been related to relationships uh, that, that you've been in. Um, did you have any uh, uh, dating or basically uh, dating relationships when you were in Colorado? Clinton mentions a fling with a married woman, but he says that was about it. Uh, any other dating relationships in Colorado in a brief period of time? Clinton shakes his head, again saying no, he didn't have any other relationships during his time in Colorado. Now, it may not seem like a huge deal in the moment, but the detectives are no doubt thinking ahead, trying to rule out possible explanations Clinton could later offer as to why his DNA was found on Helene Przinsky's body. For example, if Clanton tried to claim he actually had a romantic relationship with Przinsky, well, that could explain the DNA evidence without necessarily implicating him as her killer. But repeatedly, Clanton denies seeing anyone other than that married woman. Um, but you lived in Colorado for um, maybe a year, year and a half, possibly. Um, so during, during the rest of that time, um, there were no other relationships at all. After answering a couple more questions about his time in Colorado, Clinton gives a pretty clear indication he knows the detectives are lying to him. Going to be able to go to work tomorrow? Oh, no, I, no, I was just looking at him to see if, if he had any additional questions. Am I going to be able to go to work tomorrow? He's asking, am I going to go to work tomorrow? And what he's trying to figure out at that point is, you know, what are you planning on doing here without indicating any information about what he might be questioned about? Well, I would just have a few more questions. And um, I want to try to make this as, as expedient for you as possible. Y'all are not going to go to work tomorrow. I didn't say that. <laughs> I just want to make sure that we've covered all of our bases so that we don't have to uh, reach out to you again. They answered by not answering, (laughs) right? We're just trying to um, sum up things now so that we don't have to talk to you again. And so they're not um, specifically saying yes or no, right? They're, They're talking outside of the question. 
And so I think that they handled that probably as well as, as they could. Um, but at that point, um, he knew for sure. Sensing their suspect might not be up for talking much longer, the detectives inch even closer to asking him directly about Helene Prasinski. Do you ever, uh, 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 I don't mean to pry or get too personal, but um, ever uh, pick up any uh, hitchhikers, particularly women or anything like that? No. Clanton shakes his head no, and that's when, finally, the detectives, they level with him. You know, um, you could probably tell by now that there's more to this than this uh, financial case, right? So we talked about um, how I don't really care about uh, stolen cars from 1980 in Colorado, but we do care about a young woman. If we were to go back to the traditional way that that we perceive an interview versus an interrogation, at that point, that would have been the interrogation, right? I'm accusing you and here's what I'm accusing you of. So it is very much a a gesture to tell you that um, the questioning is going to shift now. And we want to um, show you a picture of her and see if you recognize her. Showing a photo is such a common police interrogation practice. Sometimes it's a, it's a photo of the individual, um, at the crime scene. And sometimes it's a photo of the individual at, a, you know, a normal time. And so it's, it's very effective because it's trying, they're trying to do one of two things. They're trying to either, get some sort of feedback from his facial expressions, whether this is somebody that he knew. And then they're also trying to let them, let the suspect know that they know something about his experience with this individual. The detectives set a photo of Helene Przinsky right on the table, right in front of Clanton, and ask him if he recognizes her at all. He looks at it for a couple seconds, says no, and then immediately asks for an attorney. I think I want an attorney now. You're accusing me of something else, I know. Okay, well, that's fair enough. Um, I appreciate your, your willingness to talk to us. Um, and we obviously will respect uh, your, uh, your right to an attorney, which is absolute. So we'll terminate uh, the interview at this time. As they wrap up, the detectives inform Clanton he's being placed under arrest, that they've actually had a warrant this entire time. So um, we actually have, do have a warrant for your arrest uh, for first-degree murder and kidnapping. For what? First-degree murder and kidnapping. That's what you got the wrong guy. We actually have your DNA uh, in her right. honor. Um, All right. He was expressing power, if you will, in that dynamic by saying, I want my attorney. And they're basically taking it back by saying, okay, we won't talk to you anymore. Um, by the way, you're under arrest. We <laughs> so that would have happened regardless of whether he had asked for his attorney. It's just the difference. It would be how long it would take to do that. So at this point, you are under arrest. Um, we're going to be turning you over to the custody of the Union County Sheriff's Office at this point, where you'll be held without bond pending extradition. 39 years later, an arrest has been made for the murder of Helene Przinsky. Investigators say James Clinton kidnapped Helene in 1980 on her way home from work and then brutally raped and killed her in a field in Douglas County. 
Days after his arrest, Clanton was extradited to Colorado. But before he got there, on the car ride to the airport, he decided he was willing to talk again. Okay, we're on record. It's uh, 12.02. Uh, we are in Florida, driving to the airport. Now, we don't know exactly how this came about. What all happened prior to this recording? Professor Forrest noticed a few of these apparent gaps throughout law enforcement's interactions with Clanton. I think in general, they did a, a, a good job of recording most everything. Um, but there were some interactions in the recordings that they referred to things that I could not find the original statement about. And that always frustrates me because contamination is, I think for many um, interrogators, an unintentional occurrence. So they ask specific questions that only somebody who was the perpetrator would know. And if they're saying, is it A or is it B? And a person says, well, it's A. Well, you've already provided that information in a previous context. That's why interviews should be um, recorded. That's why the entire car ride should be recorded. That's why all of that should be recorded. While we're driving the airport, Jim uh, advised me he'd like to talk to me about uh, the crimes that he's being accused of uh, from the other day when he uh, did ask for an attorney. So I'm going to read him his Miranda rights again, um, and then uh, we'll uh, have a little conversation. As it turns out, Clanton wasn't just ready to talk. He was ready to confess. So uh, when we contacted you the other day, and uh, we were interviewing you about uh, uh, your time in Colorado, did you have an idea of what we were talking to you about? Yes. Okay, and uh, what did you think that was about? About murder. Okay. Why? Why did you think we were talk, talking about murder? Did anybody, did any the cops mention the word murder to you, or um, no? Okay. So why did you think it was about murder? Because I knew that was going to come up and get me one day. Why? Why was it going to come up and get you? Did you murder someone? I did it. Okay. You did what? I killed the girl there accusing me of killing. I just wonder if at some point between the time he was arrested and it was announced, because I looked at some some news articles, it seemed like a lot of the information about why they thought he was a suspect was in the papers. And if that point he saw that, maybe he felt like that he no longer had um, the ability to, uh, even if he had an attorney or, or not, he kind of knew that he was caught. I really wish I had known or could have watched more recordings, as I said before, about what was happening in the car before the confession. It just seemed like, oh, so he, he's decided to talk to us. Let's turn on the tape. I mean, they have body cams. There's absolutely no reason not to tape everything. Um, it's all digital now. It doesn't take up physical space. And it would have been nice to know what, what was the point uh, in which he was willing to talk. Okay, so you do recognize the girl that was in that picture? Yes. Okay, can you tell me uh, what happened? Like, where did you, did, did you know her? No. Okay, where did you meet her at? Uh, saw her get off an RTD bus. And I went and picked her up and put her in my car. I don't really know where I drove to. But it ended up in Daniel's Park. Okay. Did you uh, did you get in your car willingly? No. 
Okay, how did you how did you get her into the car? I put my arm around her and had a knife in my hand and showed it to her. Did she say anything? She said, I'll go. Okay. Had you ever seen her before? No. The confession frustrated me, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, it frustrated me when they were asking very specific questions. You know, one, one example was um, there was a green zippered thing that was um, used to, oh, yeah, I, it was my green sweatshirt. And I, I mean, I felt like when the police officers were or the investigators were asking questions, they were asking questions and providing a lot of information. So you had, you did have a green, uh, a green, uh, like zipper sweatshirt type thing. I think so. Do you know where you got that from? No. Okay. I don't even remember it, but I know that it was part of a jacket or a belt, like on a jacket or something. If this hadn't been a situation where, where there had been DNA, I, I would have worried about the likelihood of that kind of contamination leading to a false confession. During the car ride, Clanton goes on to describe the rape and murder, claiming he intended to let her go, but then lost control and stabbed her to death. The detective points out the rape conviction prior to all this and then asks if he has raped or killed anyone else in the time since. Clanton says, after killing Helene Brzezinski, he stopped. How did you just stop if you've done it twice? How did, I mean, this is me just trying to understand it, if that makes sense, Jim. I'm not trying to, again, I can tell you, I'm not judging you. I'm just trying to understand you did it once in 75, another time in 1980, and then you just- Our conscience. Your conscience, okay. Clanton says in his mind, he took the step over to becoming a serial killer the day he killed Helene Przinsky. But after killing her, he says he decided not to continue down that path. If you watch some serial killer movies. Yes, sir. And documentaries, I have went through every stage of the making of a serial killer. I mean, that you see on TV. And, but I'm not a psychopath. Right. You know, I, I got a conscience, and in my mind, I had actually took the step over to become a serial killer with Helen. Right. And I couldn't because of who she was, and, and so I'm a serial killer of one. The confession would continue on the plane ride to Colorado. What What made Helene? The, the right target. Faith. After arriving in Colorado, Clanton agreed to plead guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for prosecutors not seeking the death penalty. On July 1st, 2020, just over 40 years after the murder of Helene Przinsky, a judge handed down his sentence. Mr. Clanton, I sentence you to a sentence in the Department of Corrections for the rest of your natural life. It gives me some peace knowing that this beast is in jail, but I don't think we'll ever have closure because Helene's not here and, you know, that void will remain with us forever. So the, there's a chapter that is ending, but the book continues on and um, 
we'll just have to continue on as we have. But knowing that justice has been served is a relief. So what do you think about this week's interrogation? We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can share them in our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault. Anything You Say is a Vault Studios production. Special thanks to our expert, Professor Krista D. Forrest. You can learn more about our podcasts, including Bardstown and The Officer's Wife, at vaultstudios.com. Vault Studios executive producers are Adam Ostro and Will Johnson. This episode was written and produced by Reed Redmond. For Vault Studios, I'm Eric Flack. <laughs>